0: I have a question I'd like us to consider this morning, and the question is, what should we make of what is currently going on in the Middle East? What I mean is, it's devastatingly sad, the events of October 7th and the wanton killing of Jewish people in the Middle East it is equally devastatingly sad to see the vicious retaliation of the state of Israel upon uh, the Palestinian people whereby civilians on both sides are being killed. And the question for us this morning is, what should we as Christians make of this situation? How should we think about these things? Now the wonderful thing about the Bible is it is literally the word of God Not it was the word of God, it is the word of God, meaning that through it, God speaks to every situation of life. God has something to say about the situation in Russia and Ukraine. God has something to say about the civil wars in Africa. God has something to say about the cultural wars in America. But one of the unique blessings and challenges of what's currently going on in the Middle East is that the Bible addresses this situation Directly, And the question we have is, how from God's word should we understand what's going on? Now, originally, uh, when I had laid out the sermon series back uh, in Ju- a year and a half ago, wow, a year and a half ago, in June, we were going to do the parable that Tom did last week and the parable at the end of Matthew 21 together. As we've seen what's been going on in the Middle East and prayed about it, Matthew 21 is directly applicable to understanding the situation that's happening in the Middle East currently. And so through some prayer and discernment, we decided to separate those two parables. Tom took uh, the first parable in Matthew 22, the the parable in Matthew 22, and I'm gonna take the one from Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants, to be able to talk this morning about the situation in Israel. To understand what's going on, however, we can't start in Matthew 21. We've gotta start much earlier than that. And so what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna go through a quick tour of scripture to get us ready for Matthew 21. In order to do this, I have a request. Uh, there are Bibles in the rack in front of me. We actually added Bibles in the rack, so there's now two of them. Uh, One is blue and one is brown. There is no difference between the two Bibles. The reason one is blue and one is brown is we ran out of brown Bibles, so we put blue Bibles in. If you have a Bible on your phone and you want to use that, if you brought your own Bible and you want to use that, that's perfectly fine. We're gonna take a quick tour of some Old Testament passages. If you don't feel as comfortable finding passages in the Old Testament quickly, I just encourage you to use one of the church Bibles in the rack in front of you, and I'll read out the pages. And then in those pages, uh, you'll sort of be where we are. There's not enough for everybody to have one. And so if you could, if you could share with your neighbor, uh, if they need to use one, that would be great. But we want to do this by actually flipping pages because we want to get a sense of the history that we're going through and where things fall in the scripture. So again, if you have a phone, that's fine. You'll miss something a little bit by using the Bible on the phone, but that's fine. But if you want, we'd love for you to use one of the church Bibles as we take a sort of a background tour to get us ready for what Jesus has to say in Matthew 21 so that we can understand exactly what God thinks of what's going on in the Middle East currently. So we begin in Genesis 12. That's page 8 in the church Bibles. Genesis 12 also got some graphics on the screen that will help us kind of keep track of where we're at genesis 12 and there is a promise god made to a man named abram who we know better as abraham beginning in verse one the lord had said to abram go from your country your people and your father's household and then do you see the next phrase to the land i will show you I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God says to Abraham, go to a particular land that I will show you. The land that God shows Abraham is the land that I have on a map here behind me. This is the land that we are talking about. It is the land that is currently in dispute in the Middle East. But this is the land being referred to in Genesis 12. Now you might say, what in the world is God doing with Abraham? Well, let me give you an analogy that might help explain what God is trying to do. Because at first glance, it might seem like, well, Abraham kind of won the lottery. And he's sort of this super lucky guy. And he gets this land and God kind of forgot about everybody else. And is only wanting to work with Abraham and his descendants. That's not what's going on. An analogy might be helpful. Imagine you have a group of people uh, who are currently renting apartments and you would like to help convince them of the value of home ownership and so you decide to pick one of those people who is renting an apartment and you decide you want to build them a house and let them live in that house for the purpose of showing all of the rest of the people how this works. That's what God is doing with Abraham. It's not that he likes Abraham better than everybody else. It's just that he picked one person out of all of the peoples of the earth and says, I'm going to build you and your descendants a house. And he gives them a piece of land that this is going to go in. Well, if you can imagine in this situation, if you're going to build somebody a house to kind of teach them the value and the blessing of home ownership, You're probably gonna give them some instructions about how to live in the house, how to take care of it, how the appliances work. You're probably gonna give them some instructions about how to interact with your neighbors, how to take care of all of the stuff so that having a house is a blessing because you want everybody else to see, oh, look, that person knows something about houses. And you want everybody else, in God's case, to look to God to build them a house for them to live in. So it is with Abraham and his descendants. God gives them a set of instructions. So turn over to the book of Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26 is page 101 in the church Bibles. What you're turning through when you turn pages is what's known as the Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law. And the easiest way to think about it is these are the instructions that God gives to Abraham and his descendants telling them how to live in the house. Here's the house. This is how it works. If you want to experience the blessings of the house, this is the stuff you should do. This is how to take care of the yard. This is how the appliances work. This is how to treat your neighbors. This is what you're supposed to do If you want this house to be a blessing. In the Mosaic law or the covenant or the contract. God spells out if you do these things. This will be the rewards. This will be the blessings of living in the house this way. God also spells out as you can imagine in the contract. If you're going to build somebody a house. There are stipulations in the contract. If the occupant of the house does not take care of the house. What will happen? Well, Leviticus 26 spells out sort of the punishments or the disciplines that will happen if Abraham's descendants, uh, the Jewish people, do not take care of the land that God is giving to them if they don't live in the land the way they're supposed to. Now, the interesting thing in Leviticus 26 is the punishments or the disciplines are spelled out in order, meaning there are four levels of what will happen and they get worse. So what God is saying in Leviticus is, if you don't obey, this will happen. If after that you still don't obey, then this will happen. If you still don't obey, then this will happen until you get to the fourth level. And so those are spelled out in Leviticus, verses 14 uh, through the end of the chapter. We won't read all of it, I'll just explain it to you. Level one, the level one punishment for Israel not obeying and doing what they're supposed to do is God says they will experience disease and defeat. By defeat, what he means is when you go into other people's lands to fight them, you're gonna lose. That's the level one set of punishments. Level two, if Israel doesn't heed and begin to obey, as a result, level two, crops will stop growing. God says, that's gonna be the next thing that I'm gonna to do to try to get your attention. And you can hear the contractual language here. If you don't do this, then this happens. If you don't do level two, if you don't repent and start living in the house the way you're supposed to live in the house, then comes level three. Level three is attack, plagues, and siege, but this time the enemies are invading Israel. So in level one, Israel is going out and losing By the time we get to level three, foreign armies are invading Israel and laying siege uh, to its cities. And then we get to level four, which is the final thing. And level four is spelled out for us in verses 27 and following. If in spite of this, in spite of these first three levels, if you don't pay any attention to this, if in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile toward me, then in my anger, I will be hostile toward you. And I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places cut down your incense altars and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols and I will abhor you. He's talking to Abraham's biological descendants. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste, your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. The level for punishment is exile. Again, in our analogy, what basically happens is as God says, look, I'm gonna take you out of the house I built for you and I'm gonna put you back in an apartment and then I'm gonna level the house. That's the final level in the contract. Well, as you go through the Bible and you can turn uh, all the way to uh, 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17, which is page 306. Actually, we're going to be on 306, 307. While you're turning, let me tell you what you're turning through. So Leviticus, so Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that's essentially the contract. In Joshua, it's back to narrative, and Israel moves into the house. They move into the land. In Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings, you have varying levels of Israel disobeying and experiencing those punishments. So in Judges you get a lot of level one punishments. By the time you get to first and second Samuel and First Kings, you're starting to get a lot more level two and level three punishments. At times Israel repents and then God relents. And then Israel falls back into sin and God reenacts the punishments that he said he would do. And so through Judges, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, we have punishments of the levels one, two, and three until you get to 2 Kings 17. Now by this point in Israel history, they have disobeyed so much, they've actually had a civil war and have been separated into two separate nations. 10 tribes of the 12 tribes, which are the descendants of Abraham, 10 tribes in the north, they call themselves Israel, slightly confusing. Two tribes in the south call themselves Judah. 2 Kings 17 is talking about the country in the north, the 10 tribes in the north, called Israel, verse 21 of 2 Kings 17, so page 307. You might notice on page 306, if you're using the church Bibles, it says, Hosea, the last king of Israel. That's of the 10 tribes in the north, verse 21. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, that was the civil war, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria and they are still there. That's the level four punishment. The 10 tribes in the north kept disobeying for so long that finally God said, you're getting kicked out of the land. I gave you the land, but you did not obey. You may not have the land anymore. Turn over to 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings is kind of a sad book (laughs) because now we've got two more tribes left in the south, what's known as the nation of Judah, They did better than Israel, but not much. And after Israel was exiled from the land, Judah continued to disobey until you get to verse 21 of 2 Kings 25, page 315. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. This is the level four punishment for Judah. They too are exiled from their land. And so when 2 Kings closes, it's pretty sad. God made a promise to Abraham and to his descendants. He said, I'm gonna build you a house. I'm gonna give you some land. And if you follow this contract, you will love living in this house. You're going to be a great sign to all of your neighbors. You're going to be a blessing to everybody. And pretty soon, if you do this right, all the rest of the people are going to want me to build them a house too. But they don't obey. And so God keeps invoking the contract. He said, I made a contract with you. You guys agreed to do this. And so he punishes them. And then they repent. And he punishes them. And they fall back until finally, after hundreds of years and more patience than you and I will ever be able, to understand God says that's it I'm kicking you out so they get kicked out of the land first the 10 tribes in the north to Assyria and then the 2 tribes in the south but God made a promise to Abraham and so he doesn't kill Abraham's descendants he just kicks them out of the land so especially these 2 tribes in the south they go into exile for 70 years in Babylon Books like Esther and Daniel recount what is happening in Babylon. You know what I forgot to do? I'm up here all excited about all of this stuff, teaching this all to you. I forgot a super important point from Leviticus 26. Can you turn back to Leviticus 26? Man. I was like, I got a really important point that I forgot to read the text to make. So Leviticus 26 It's the good news in the contract that I left out. Page 102. Sorry. (laughs) Leviticus 26, page 102. Okay, so we're back into the contract. Verse 40. So after God says, this is what's gonna happen if you violate my commands, but if they will confess their sins, and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility, toward who? Towards God, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham And I will remember what? The land. This is the good news. I'm so sorry that I forgot to read to you. Which is even after level four punishment, even after the total violation of the covenant. God says, if they will repent, if they will confess, I will remember the promise that I made and I'll put them back into the land. Okay, so all the way back, we're still in 2 Kings 25. What happens is, as Judah goes into exile in Babylon, they're living outside the land exactly how God said it would happen in the contract. But through the faithfulness of Daniel and some other people, they begin to realize that God did to them exactly what they deserved. Actually, less probably than what they deserved. And so Daniel confesses the sins of his people in exile, and God hears that confession counts it for them, and then returns them to the land. And they begin to rebuild the land. That's the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the Old Testament closes with Israel being back in their land, and the New Testament opens with Israel being in their land. However, in between the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the time of the opening of the New Testament when Jesus shows up on the scene, Israel's in their land, but they've not been super obedient. So they've experienced levels one, two, until we finally get to level three punishment, meaning when the New Testament opens, Rome is in the land ruling. That's a level three punishment. Their enemies have invaded the land, and Israel is not in control of the land that God entrusted to them. That's where we are when Matthew 21 comes on the scene. So now, would you please turn to Matthew 21, page 803. We're gonna need all of that history to understand the story that Jesus is telling, which is not meant simply to explain the history. The story Jesus is telling is meant to explain what's happening in 2024 in Israel today. But it's all part of a bigger pattern in which God is continuing to be faithful to the things he said he would do with regard to Abraham and his biological descendants, the Jewish people. Okay, page 803, Jesus says in verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them, They will respect my son, he said. What Jesus is referring to in the first part of the parable is the stuff we just went through. I use the analogy of a house. Jesus is using the analogy of a vineyard. What he's saying is is that God gave to Abraham's descendants a piece of land. And on that land you can build houses, and on that land you have vineyards. And then he sent to them people to collect the fruit. What this means is he sent to the people of Israel prophets who were coming to ask for the fruit, meaning he wants the fruit of the spirit. He wants love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He's looking for the things, the blessings that were supposed to come out of obedience. Jesus said, what did the Jewish leaders do to those prophets? They beat them, they stoned them, they killed them, they rejected them. Those are the pages we turned through. So we didn't turn, after 2 Kings, there's not much more history. The rest of the books we turned through were the prophets. The prophets who had came and said to Israel, hey, look, this isn't your land. God gave it to you so that you would produce the fruit that goes with obedience. Give him what he deserves. That's what the contract calls for. And they refused to do that. So in verse 37... We get to this moment in Matthew 21 when Matthew, said, when Jesus says, "And so God the Father who owns the land, says, "I will send them my son." That's Jesus. Surely they will listen to my Son. Surely they will listen to the very Son of God." Verse 38. "But when the tenants saw the Son, they said to each other, "This is the heir." Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. This is how you know this is satanic. Because who in their right mind would think that if you killed a guy's son, he's gonna give you land? It doesn't make any rational sense whatsoever. But they say, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they killed him and threw him out of, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That of course is the crucifixion. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of crop at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's speaking to the Jewish leaders and given to a people who will produce its fruit anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces anyone on whom it falls will be crushed when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables they knew he was talking about them they looked for a way to arrest him but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet Jesus is referring to the history we just looked at look there's a contract and that contract's still here and the idea is, is that we're already at level three and Jesus says, hey, look, if you don't obey, what's gonna happen? You'll experience the level four punishment that's waiting. What did the Jewish leaders do with Jesus? They crucify him. Remember what Leviticus said, if you are hostile towards me, What could possibly be more hostile towards God than executing his son? That is the definition of hostility. And what do you think God's response to that action is going to be? He's going to exile them from the land. That's what Leviticus says. That's what Jesus says. He's going to take the land and give it to somebody who's going to give its fruit. And just like we looked in the Old Testament to see it actually happen in history, So if you turn through the pages of history, you will see what Jesus says here actually happens. Meaning, in A.D. 70, Emperor Vespasian, who is the emperor of Rome, sends his son Titus to Jerusalem to put down an uprising. Titus totally destroys the temple in direct fulfillment of what Jesus prophesies in Matthew 24. And then 60 years later, Emperor Hadrian comes also into Israel and finishes the task that Titus began, which is what Jesus is referring to here. In A.D. 130, 135, Emperor Hadrian finally invades Israel with six Roman legions and totally decimates the Jewish people. From that point on, he expels them from the land. They cannot live there anymore. To sort of rub salt in the wound and to try to make this stick Hadrian decides to rename the land and so he tries to go with the name of the group who came before Israel except he gets it slightly wrong. Instead of Philistine, he calls it Palestine, which is where that name came from. So Hadrian renames the land Palestine or Palestine and from AD 130... Until 1948, Israel was living in a state of exile from their land. In 1948, in in response to the Jewish Zionist movement, the United States, Great Britain, and the United Nations created the modern state of Israel. I have a map here of what that looks like. These are not the 1948 borders. I think these are the 1967 borders. But you can see the lighter part. Uh, That's what we call the state of Israel. The green kidney looking thing in the middle of it is what we call the West Bank. It's on the West Bank of the Jordan River. And then you can see the Gaza Strip, uh, which is down here by Egypt uh, in the south. This is the land that's currently being disputed today. Many Christians, when this happened in 1948, thought this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because God did prophesy that Israel would still get this land. And remember, the contract's still there. God made a promise to Abraham and to his biological descendants about this piece of land. And so lots of Christians were like, whoa, look at this. God is fulfilling prophecy. But the question that remains... Why did Israel get kicked out of the land? Disobedience specifically how? They crucified the Messiah. That's the sin they got exiled for. So I scratch my head and say, but wait a second. In 1948, we didn't have repentance for that sin. Meaning the Jewish leaders who formed the modern state of Israel did not begin confessing Jesus as Messiah. Furthermore, when I look at what's currently going on, I look and I say, well, where are the fruits of the Spirit in the leadership and what's happening? Where is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? This is what God is expecting from the land. God brings Israel back into the land with Daniel because they've repented and they're trying to offer God the fruit that he deserves. Now I see in AD 130, they got kicked out because they rejected Jesus as Messiah. And then I look and think, but that hasn't been accounted for. They haven't repented from that. There hasn't been a national confession of sin against God when they are hostile toward me. There's not been a recognition of a lack of obedience. And then I look at what currently is going on in the Middle East and I think, is this how God does things? This doesn't feel like God to me. Now some of you be like, whoa. What are you saying? Let me say it this way. I do believe that it's very possible that God will use what happened in 1948 and the creation of a modern state of Israel. I do believe that God may use that in part of fulfilling his promise still on the books to Abraham and his biological descendants. But when I look at what's going on there currently, It looks a lot, it looks to me a lot like a previous story in Israel's history. One that goes all the way back to the person they're named after Abraham's grandson, a man named Jacob, whom God changes his name to Israel, which is where we get this language from. That person, Jacob, was promised a blessing by God. That the blessing that we read in Genesis 12 was supposed to go to Isaac, his father, and then from Isaac, not to Esau, his brother, but to Jacob. This is how it's supposed to go. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But Jacob did not wait for God to give him the blessing. What did Jacob do? Jacob stole the blessing through deception. Jacob tried to make something happen in his own time that God had not yet brought about in God's timing. Now in the end, God ended up using it. But at no point did God ever approve of how Jacob got it. When I look at what's going on in the Middle East, I see something that God has promised will happen, starting to happen. But I think the means by which we got here are not means that God would approve of because they do not yet involve an acknowledgement of Jesus as Messiah. And what the New Testament says is is how the biological descendants of Abraham get this land is when Jesus, the Messiah, returns and is acknowledged as Messiah, then he puts them back into their land. So what do we have going on now? Well, I think we got a political problem of human making. There's a reason why Esau wants to kill Jacob after he steals the blessing. There's a reason why Esau's descendants Edom are constantly at war with Jacob's descendants Israel because Jacob inserted sin into the process. So what we have going on here is a political problem. So, currently in the Middle East, how should Christians think about things happening there? Let me give you six principles that hopefully will help us as we think through and process what's going on. Number one, our priority today is supporting, loving, and praying for Christians in the land of Israel, both Jewish Christians, meaning Messianic Jews, and Arab Christians, all believers in Jesus. They are the ones currently in the land giving God the fruit that he deserves. This means every time a praise song is sung to Jesus as Messiah in the land of Israel, God is receiving what he deserves and God is accomplishing the blessing that he wants for the whole world through that. So our priority is to help bless and encourage Christians in the land of Israel. Which, by the way, that is the group that both the Jews and the Muslims are persecuting. So we do that at Calvary through some missionaries that we have in the land. We work with a Christian uh, tour guide when we take tours of Israel. Uh, There are other parts of networks that we're connected to. This is what we're wanting to do, a priority to try to help our brothers and sisters, both Arab and Jews, who acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. They are the ones who have the right to the land. Because they are giving God the fruit that he deserves. Number two. Our encouragement is to love Jewish people. That's the biological descendants of Abraham. Because they need Jesus as Messiah. We love them. We pray for them. We want them to come to understand. The problems that are happening in the Middle East are not a result of simply the state of Israel or Hamas or those sorts of things. The problem in the Middle East is that people don't know Jesus. And so what we're praying for, because 2 Corinthians 3 says, is that those biological descendants of Abraham currently have their minds blinded by Satan. So they cannot see that Jesus is Lord. And so while they are loved on account of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are currently estranged from God, and we are praying for that estrangement to end. But this is why we don't just simply turn a blind eye to anything the state of Israel does. Settlements that go against agreements, the way that people have been treated in the Middle East, we don't turn a blind eye to that. We recognize that's because they don't know Jesus. And so we're praying for Jewish descendants of Abraham to come to recognize that Jesus is Messiah. Third, we're also loving Muslims because they too are being deceived. And the idea is is that we don't sort of, it says the whole world is under the control of the evil one. If you look and see what happened on October 7th, that was pure, unadulterated evil. What those people need is Jesus. And so we're praying that Jesus' name would be known. We're praying that he would appear in dreams to those who are Muslims. We're not in any way saying, hey, look, this is okay. We're not saying all the land should be given back to Palestinians or to Muslims. We're not saying those things. We're recognizing the problem here is Jesus. They need Jesus, and so we're praying for them to know Jesus as well. Fourth, we need to affirm that death is tragic. tragic especially for those that don't know Jesus. It doesn't matter what you think ought to happen in the Middle East. Jewish people who don't know Jesus who die are spending an eternity separated from God. And as viciously cruel as you might think actions of Hamas and others are, every person who dies who doesn't know Jesus is going to spend an eternity separated from God in hell we consider all of this tragic there is a political problem we want desperately for there to be peace the reason we want peace is not because we don't want to read about it in the news anymore the reason we want peace is because everybody who dies apart from Jesus is facing an eternity without God And so the tragedy of the whole situation ought to cut us to the heart. And we do desperately pray for peace. Number five. This is a unique opportunity to reject political allegiances and follow Jesus alone. It's amazing to me That many people's opinions about the Middle East seem to fall along along partisan lines. That generally, Republicans or conservatives tend to be for the state of Israel, and generally, Democrats or progressives tend to be for the Palestinians. If you are viewing things along those lines, it probably has more to do with our political ideology than it does with what God has to say. We are not for the state of Israel, and we are not for the Palestinians. We are for Jesus. When Jesus shows up with Joshua, and Joshua says, whose side are you on? Jesus says to Joshua, I'm on my own side. Whose side are you on? And so when we look at what's going on there, if you see, if you're like, we're not rooting for one side to win. We're not rooting for someone to be victorious. We're rooting for Jesus to be known to all people. And we're rooting for people to be saved. That's what we're rooting for. And if you find in your heart being drawn to the state of Israel, or you find in your heart being drawn to the Palestinian cause and not to Jesus, something is amiss. And here is an opportunity. It could not be any more black and white in the scriptures. That what is at stake here is God and Jesus. You have been hostile towards my son. I will be hostile towards you. All who have rejected Jesus are enemies of God except for the gospel. And so that's why we're saying, hey, look, and I do it too. If you read news stories and you start rooting for one side over the other, if you start hoping for this or for that that align with political allegiances, just know we've probably fallen back into a partisan cultural divide. Instead of thinking about this from Jesus' point of view. And then six and finally. While we are praying for peace. There is a recognition that true peace will only come with the return of Jesus. Hallelujah. And so in the midst of the mess, we're looking for any political solution. That will keep people from dying. That will be fair and right and just and good as possible. But we're recognizing that our ultimate hope is we need Jesus to come back and make this all right. Jacob made a mess of his life. And God showed up and in grace, bless Jacob. The United States, Great Britain, and the United Nations have made a mess of the Middle East. And we're waiting for the Messiah to come back and make things right. We thought we were he, but we are not. When he returns, he will make all things right. He will bring the biological descendants of Abraham back into their land because they will see him as Messiah and repent and believe. He will judge the nations with justice. And he will do what is right and fair and good. And this is our great hope. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we prayed for understanding at the beginning. We'll pray for understanding at the end. These are complex issues. Help us, Lord. Forgive our hearts. They are desperately wicked and inclined towards one side or the other. But Jesus, we are for you. We want your name to be glorified. We are pained that your enemies put you to death, but we were those enemies. And you were gracious to us. Help us to love all people who do not yet know you. And God, may your gospel go forward in that land and around the world. And God, may we love biological descendants of Abraham here, Jews, Muslims, Arabs, all over the world. God, may all come to know that you, Jesus, are Lord. We pray this in your name, amen.